Hello and welcome back to Hidden in Plain Sight, the series that explores what happened to Christopher Marlowe beyond 1593. With me again are my two resident experts, Dr. Peter Hodges and Carol Paxton. Hello again, guys. Hello again, Julian. Hello. <laughs> in this episode, we turn our focus to the sonnets. Our listeners know that, that we identified Marlowe as the author of the rival poet sonnets, numbers 78 to 86, in case you don't remember from our last season. If you are new to our podcast, make sure you go and check it out. There are actually a lot of different theories about the sonnets, some of them making the biographical argument, some of them asserting that they should only be read as pure poetic expressions and not at all biographical. And then there are even those who claim that they are written in some form of as yet undeciphered code. Peter, would you do us the honor of giving us a simple and brief overview of this debate? Uh, thank you, Julian. Yes, I'll try to keep it brief. We have the sonnets. They've been around for over 400 years since they were published in 1609. And easily for the first 300 or so years, the sonnets were understood to be essentially autobiographical. This is because by virtue of the cover page of the original publication, they appear to be addressed to whom it is dedicated. This is supposedly a Mr. W.H., and many guesses have been made about the identity of that individual. But the one thing that held true throughout this period of time was that critics and readers generally understood that this was one half of a, let's call it correspondence or a conversation in poetic terms between the author of the sonnets and the person who was receiving them being the person to whom they were dedicated. That was the way people understood the sonnets, and they did what they could with them because it's sort of difficult, if you will, to figure out who this writer might be, but there's a name on the cover page. It says Shakespeare, so a lot of people just have made that assumption. When the question about authorship of not just the sonnets, but uh, plays themselves began to percolate, as a result of people doing more and more research into the life of William Shakespeare and discovering the historical record, which matched up very neatly with the man of business who had a particular specialization in managing theater, they were nevertheless unable to find to many people's satisfactions. I won't say to everyone, but I will say to satisfaction of a great many people, correspondence between what is written about in the sonnets and what is known about the putative author of those sonnets. They simply don't talk about the same things. The physical record of Willem Shakespeare all has to do with money lending and borrowing money and occasionally evading taxes and so forth, but really nothing addressing the notion of being a writer never mind even being a theater manager or any other thing having to do with a long-term career in, in London. 
So that is a conundrum that possessed people for a great spell. And out of that, a theory has developed that the sonnets should be read for their poetic beauty, entirely divorced from any question of matching any biography of any specific person. Now, this is something that really got headwinds in the 20th century, uh, as more and more individuals and academics and critics began to defend themselves, if you will, defend the notion that Shakespeare was the author from those who questioned it and who wanted to use the sonnets in order to press that question. Um, further from that, then, has come the riposte, which has been that in the absence of being able to identify any individual to whom the, the text of the sonnets matches, people have begun to do all sorts of things with the sonnets. One thing they started doing was taking them out of the order in which they are printed, finding bits and pieces in specific sonnets that attracted them, attracted their notice, and locating things in the lives of alternative authors and saying, see here, this means it's Francis Bacon. Or you see here, when the sonnet says this, that means it's being written by Mary Sidney. Or over here, when I read this, why our ever-living poet, why that's obviously a reference to the Earl of Oxford, De Vere. As if every moment that the word E-V-E-R somehow means that De Vere <laughs> should be transliterated. Well, I can tell you, this just becomes so confusing and such an enormous scaffold of possibilities. There are even people now, I hesitate to say this, but it is true, people who are designing algorithmic examinations of the sonnets, trying to pump the sonnets through some kind of computer dissection machine so that it can then be rearranged in a format that will be understandable and will fingerprint an individual that they have pre-selected must have been the author. There are people who read them for acrostics. There are people who read them in numerology. I can't wait for the Sudoku version. It's coming, believe me. Oh, and so <laughs> faced with all of that, I must say, in all the time and all the research that I've done on the sonnets, the one thing that nobody ever really did, I've never read anything where anybody simply said, let's rip the cover page off that claims that it was written on behalf of so-and-so by so-and-so. Let's just rip that off and treat this a little bit more forensically. Let's take them as if, okay, somebody wrote them. Why not read them in the order they were printed? If we can presume, and I don't think it's unfair to do this, I'll go this far. If we can presume that they were written to someone, not as a formalistic exercise, but to someone, then what would you do if you were in possession of a stack of correspondence and you wanted to publish it? If you were the person who had received all that mail and you chose to publish someone's letters, 
you'd publish them in the order in which they were written. That's the simplest thing to do. That's what everybody does when they publish letters. So why hasn't anybody sat down and looked at it that way? Now, don't want to get too far down the road with this theory, but the rival poet's sonnets behave exactly that way. You read them as a block of text written to a specific person, and if you don't presume who they are written to, if you simply read them for what they say, it is then possible to find the evidence, fingerprinting all of the individuals involved, including the person that is accused, the person to whom the testimony is given, and the person giving the testimony. So with that, it occurred to me, let's look at this whole book as something that happens over a period of time. I can't say how long a time it is. I don't know in advance how, I know that they were published in 1609. I know that the rival poet sequence must have happened in 1598. And I also believe that the first 17 sonnets were written to Southampton on a commission in, six, in 1590. Well, that's three dates. 1590, 1598, and 1609. So the question now becomes, what else in this string of poems might match up with the events that took place in the outer world, in the real world, during that same, want to call it, 19-year period? That's the way I'm looking at this. Yep, yeah, and we, we do have a couple of other dates as well. We have the famous mention by Francis Mears of sugared sonnets among his private friends in 1598. Um, we have the publication of versions of two of them in The Passionate Pilgrim in 1599. So we have some dates there. There are some very close correspondences to parts of Love's Labour's Lost. And again, we know that that... Actually, the first play to appear with uh, the name William Shakespeare on it in, I think, 98. Am I right there? I, I might be. 1598. Yeah. So we can derive a few more. They're not dates of composition. They're, they're terminal dates. We know that the sonnet existed in a particular form by that date. And I so say we can definitely uh, say that at least some of them were most definitely exist in existence by 1598-1599. Um, how many of them date between then and publication in 1609? That's another story, isn't it? It is another story. Sorry. Here's what the methodology that I would propose, because you want to avoid cherry-picking too much too soon. And the passionate pilgrim is a particular problem which, spoiler alert, I want to get to, but not right this moment, no, because no. <laughs> it is very strange, the whole affair. But the thing that I'm trying to look for, let's just test the theory on a macro level. Can we find another significant event that would appear on the timeline that also would then appear reflected within the sonnets? And it doesn't have to be something, let's say, 
you know, sonnet number one was written on April 1st, 1590, and sonnet number two therefore had to be written on April 2nd. It can't be as simple as that. And there may be spaces of time where none of the sonnets that are published had been written. But if we can find another significant block of text, say, for instance, between the first 1590-17 that we posit were written on the occasion of Southampton's 17th birthday, and the 1598 date, which is very firm, I think, where you can establish that Marlowe was writing in complaint about Chapman, which we spent an entire eight episodes doing, if you have those two dates, then what is it that really stands out between, let's say, Sonnet 18 and Sonnet 15, or, or Sonnet 18 and Sonnet 77? What really stands out? And to me, to me, it's the group of sonnets 25 to 36, because this group of sonnets sounds very much like somebody who's been smacked over the head with a terrible event and is now having to suffer the consequences of it. And if, and if that person was Christopher Marlowe, and if he suddenly went from feeling pretty good about himself to being pretty lousy about himself, then Sonnet 29 would be perhaps the one that's most emblematic of the entire occasion, which... I'm going to read it here. When in disgrace with fortune in men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state and treble deaf heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate. Now, where does that come from? I'm going to suggest that it comes from having to clear out of London and beat a path across the channel and go into hiding. I'm going to suggest that that entire batch of poems is talking all about that. And it certainly explains a lot of the motivation for writing them. And that mm. is very firmly in the timeline. And I'd like to perhaps add 74 to that. The coward conquest of a wretched knife, too base of thee to be remembered. Oh. Yeah, you read all sorts of glosses in which we are, uh, or the author tries to persuade us to believe that the wretch's knife is death, but there is no iconography where death has a knife, death has a scythe. Then we should also mention Sonnet 74, in which the author says, So then thou hast but lost the dregs of life, the prey of worms, my body being dead, the coward conquest of a wretch's knife. Now, many commentators have tried to gloss that as the wretch being death, and death's knife, but death has a scythe. But if we refer it to the story of somebody who is reportedly dead, stabbed through the eye with a knife by a man, Ingram Fraser, who could well be described as a wretch, then I think we have a very solid reference there as well. Even Jonathan Bate, Arch Stratfordian, uh, and a man I have a lot of admiration for, has thought that this poem, this sonnet, refers to Marlowe, but written by Shakespeare. I don't think it quite works yes, like of course. that, but he can see it. He can see what it is. The only thing about 74 and 73, for that matter, is to me, they violate in one sense the timeline, because although you could say that Marlowe's departure 
1593 is before writing the rival poet sonnets in 1598, for him to be reflecting on that in the moment with sonnets 73 and 74 puts them rather late on a line where one thing follows another. So when I'm looking at something like 29, I'm looking at it as if it has immediately happened when I bewailed my outcast state. Whereas when I'm looking at 73 and 74, I'm looking at it as time has passed when he's writing that. There's an argument to re, you know, in the other in the other direction, and and you could conceivably say that breaks the timeline because I do believe there are other things that happen on the timeline before we get to seventy three and seventy four that would follow the events described in seventy three and seventy four, but I think this introduces a note of confusion which right at the moment, I'd kind of like to avoid. <laughs> Going sure. back to 4 through 25 to 36. Can I, can I just backtrack very slightly? Mm -hmm. um, if you wanted to, I suppose we could say that, I've just looked it up, The Theatre of God's Judgment, the book by Beard, which tells the story of Marlowe's horrible death in, in Deptford, was published in 1597. Perhaps we could see that 73 and 74 as a reaction to that very public airing of the story. That's not altogether unlikely that Marlowe would be responding to false reports of his death. Hmm. That is almost, that, that, that's actually something I hadn't thought of before. I, I hadn't either. It just, that. it just sort of clicked into my head. Just, just uh, kind of pops into your head. Yeah, yeah. this was be about the time, and this is a very serious moment in time when the subject of Marlowe's death is being paraded around in publications. And therefore, it would be time for him to make his own statement vis-a-vis -vis what really happened. So those are triggering events that would then not violate the timeline, and they would bring it back into a space where that conversation is still happening. Because somewhere in here, between 1593 and 1598, Marlowe is advancing his complaints about being stuck outside of London. And in Sonnet 73, he talks about the twilight of his career. And the person that he's writing to, of course, is not standing in the twilight. It's Marlowe who is being seen in the twilight by the person to whom he's writing. So he's very concerned about the fact that time has passed and that he's not being given the opportunity to return. So that does fit. That does fit. When you go back, though, just to make the macro point here, and, and I think as far as this episode, we want to take it, if you chart that, you get another gigantic block of text. We have 17 sonnets to start. We have 12 of them, 25 to 36 which all deal with the eruption of his false murder and escape, him talking about why did you promise me a summer's day and having to cross the channel. So obviously he was somewhat deluded or, or deceived in this. 
And then when we reach the conclusion of it, he says, well, I must confess the two of the twain of us must part. And so we go from denial and 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 anger and into acceptance. It's almost like a, a series of steps that everybody gives you about, you know, what death is all about. The first thing you do is deny that he's dead, and then you grieve, and then you accept. And that's sort of what you see happening with 25 to 36. So that's 12 more sonnets. Then you get to 78 to 86. You have nine more sonnets. We've just managed to place over one-third of the sonnets that we've discussed in the first 86 on a timeline that is firm. And now you've added 73 and 74, something I had never thought of, which is to tie them together to something that's happening in the real world, where people are starting to put out false publications claiming that Marlowe actually was murdered stabbed over a dispute with a serving man and so forth. And his take on that is, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> and that is why we, we love having three heads rather than just two, because it just brings new dimensions and new ways of thinking. And we've just perhaps unearthed something new that nobody else has ever thought of. So that's fantastic. I'm sure they have. <laughs> yes. You know, a criticism that has been made of people reading the sonnets. I won't say who said this, but it was recently made in a Shakespeare Authorship Trust Zoom cast that people can read the sonnets in any way they like, and they can impose upon them any selected meaning and turn it into anything. They can take them inside out. They can read them. So balderdash, you shouldn't try to use the sonnets as a touchstone. And I say nonsense. And what just happened is actually proof of that. Because when you're looking at the timeline and you're saying to yourself, you're scratching your head, why are these things out of order? Lo and behold, you discover quite spontaneously, because you're saying, why doesn't it fit the timeline? You discover there's something out there that did exist in real time, that really did happen, and that these sonnets, if they are held to that standard of having to have been sparked by something that happened in the real world, there's the something, there's that something. And what he's doing is making an answer to it. And this is a simple technique. And I, I would say, this is the way in which you can drill down into these sonnets once they are put out as letters, having been written one after the other as things happened in the real world, you might not really understand the first time you look at it where it's coming from. But someone else, like our friend Carol here, comes along and says, yeah, but you forget such and such happened then. Oh, yeah. Dolly Wright, A.D. Wright's famous book, The Story That the Sonnets Tell, I would not agree with everything that she said, by the way, but I think where she was very right was to say that there is a story here. It doesn't involve every single sonnet. There are some which are not autobiographical or personal, but there are a substantial number that are. And in fact, we can go all the way back to 1923, the famous article by, I think I'm correct in saying, Archie Webster, who was perhaps the first person to see the story of the sonnets as Marlowe's story. 
Well, I think, you know, the first thing that has to occur to somebody is, you know, when in disgrace with fortune in men's eyes is that has really one of, been one of those poems that nobody could make any sense out of because when was Shakespeare ever in disgrace? The, the man had a career of total success, uninterrupted. Whoever disgraced, where, why would he feel? What? But Marlowe, yeah, pretty doggone disgraced. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing was that Dame Judi Dench appeared on the Graham Norton show two weeks ago, and she recited Sonnet 29 in full. And even <laughs> as she started off with the first three lines, it immediately came to me, that is Marlowe writing and complaining and bemoaning his fallen state. It's so clear and so obvious. And it especially is. the it last is. line when when she says when he says you know that he would um, forego the 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 scorn of kings or something like that. Yep. If only I am seeing good in your eyes. Absolutely. And of course he's writing to the Walsinghams. I haven't been able to parse which one of them exactly, but he's most certainly writing to them both because they. They would have been married by that. Well, they weren't married by that point. In 1593, they weren't married yet. So who is he writing to? That's a question we will probe. Excellent. That was great. <laughs> I love it. Discoveries being made, ladies and gentlemen. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and look at that. It was hidden in plain sight all along. It was along. hidden in plain sight, yes. Well, join us again, everybody, for our next episode when we hope to discover more exciting things. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on social media. We have a Facebook page or just write in and tell us your comments and suggestions or ask us any questions and hopefully we'll be able to answer them. Until next time, from Carol, Peter and myself, keep hip.